Harper Children's Audio presents Nation by Terry Pratchett, performed by Stephen Briggs. Copyright 2008 by Terry and Lynn Pratchett. Production copyright 2008 by HarperCollins Publishers. How Emo Made the World in the Time When Things Were Otherwise and the Moon Was Different. Emo set out one day to catch some fish, but there was no sea. There was nothing but Emo. So he spat in his hands and rubbed them together and made a ball of sea. After that, he made some fish, but they were stupid and lazy. So he took the souls of some dolphins, who at least had learned to speak, and he mixed them with clay and rubbed them in his hands and changed their shape and they became people. They were clever but they could not swim all day, so Emo dug some more clay and rubbed it in his hands and baked it in the fire of his fishing camp, and that was how the land was made. Soon the people filled all the lands and were hungry, so Emo took some of the night and rubbed it in his hands and made Lokaha, the god of death. Still Emo was not satisfied, and he said, I have been like a child playing in the sand. This is a flawed world. I had no plan. Things are wrong. I will rub it in my hands and make a better one. But Lokaha said, The mud is set. People will die. Emo was angry and said, Who are you to question me? And Lokaha said, I am a part of you, as are all things. So I say to you, Give me the mortal world and go and make your better one. I will rule here fairly. When a human dies, I will send them to be a dolphin until it is time for them to be born again. But when I find a creature who has striven, who has become more than the mud from which they were made, who has glorified this mean world by being a part of it, then I will open a door for them into your perfect world, and they will no longer be creatures of time, for they will wear stars. Emo thought this was a good idea, because it was his own creation, and went off to make his new world in the sky. But before he did this, and so that Lokaha would not have things all his own way, he breathed into his hands and made the other gods, so that while the people should die, it would be in their right time. And this is why we are born in water, and do not kill dolphins, and look toward the stars. Chapter 1. The Plague the snow came down so thickly it formed fragile snowballs in the air that tumbled and melted as soon as they landed on the horses lined up along the dock. It was four in the morning, and the place was coming alive, and Captain Sampson had never seen the dock in such a bustle. The cargo was flying out of the ship, literally. The cranes strained in their efforts to get the bales out as quickly as possible. The ship stank of the disinfectant already, stank of the stuff. Every man who came on board was so drenched in it that it dribbled out of his boots. But that wasn't enough. Some of them had squelched aboard with big, heavy spray cans that spat an acid pink fog over everything. And there was nothing Captain Sampson could do about it. The agent for the owners was right there on the dockside with his orders in his hands. But Captain Sampson was going to try. Do you really think we're infectious, Mr. Bezard? he barked to the man on the dock. I can assure you. "'You are not infectious, Captain, as far as we know, but this is for your own good,' shouted the agent through his enormous megaphone, "'and I must once again warn you and your men not to leave the ship. "'We have families, Mr. Bezard.' "'Indeed? 
and they are already being taken care of. Believe me, Captain, they are fortunate, and so will you be if you follow orders. You must return to Port Mercia at dawn. I cannot stress enough how important this is. Impossible. It's the other side of the world. We've only been back a few hours. We are low on food and water. You will set sail at dawn and rendezvous in the Channel with the Maid of Liverpool, just returned from San Francisco. Company men are aboard her now. They will give you everything you need. They will strip that ship to the waterline to see that you are properly provisioned and crewed. The captain shook his head. This is not good enough, Mr. Bezard. What you are asking, it's too much. I... Good God, man, I need more authority than some words shouted through a tin tube. I think you will find me all the authority you need, Captain. Do I have your permission to come aboard? The Captain knew that voice. It was the voice of God, or the next best thing. But although he recognised the voice, he hardly recognised the speaker standing at the foot of the gangplank. That was because he was wearing a sort of birdcage. At least, that's what it looked like at first sight. Closer to, he could see that it was a fine metal framework with a thin gauze around it. The person inside walked in a shimmering cloud of disinfectant. "'Sir Geoffrey,' said the captain, just to be sure, as the man began to walk slowly up the glistening gangplank. "'Indeed, Captain, I'm sorry about this outfit. It's called a salvation suit, for obvious reasons. It is necessary for your protection. The Russian influenza has been worse than you can possibly imagine. We believe the worst is over, but it has taken a terrible toll at every level of society.' "'Every level, Captain, believe me.' There was something in the way the chairman said every that made the captain hesitate. "'I take it that His Majesty is—isn't—' He stopped, unable to force the rest of the question out of his mouth. "'Not only His Majesty, Captain. I said worse than you can possibly imagine,' said Sir Geoffrey, while red disinfectant dripped off the bottom of the salvation suit and puddled on the deck like blood. "'Listen to me.' The only reason the country is not in total chaos at this moment is that most people are too scared to venture out. As chairman of the line, I order you, and as an old friend, I beg you, for the sake of the empire, sail with the devil's speed to Port Mercia and find the governor. Then you will—ah, here come your passengers. This way, gentlemen. Two more carriages had pulled up in the chaos of the dockside. Five shrouded figures came up the gangplank, carrying large boxes between them, and lowered them onto the deck. "'Who are you, sir?' the captain demanded of the nearest stranger, who said, "'You don't need to know that, captain.' "'Oh, don't I indeed!' Captain Sampson turned to Sir Geoffrey with his hands open in appeal. "'God damn it, chairman, pardon my French. Have I not served a line faithfully for more than thirty-five years? I am the captain of the Cutty Wren, sir.' A captain must know his ship and all that is on it. I will not be kept in the dark, sir. If I cannot be trusted, I will walk down the gangplank right now. Please don't upset yourself, captain, said Sir Geoffrey. He turned to the leader of the newcomers. Mr. Black, the captain's loyalty is beyond question. Yes, I, I was hasty. My apologies, captain, said Mr. Black. But we need to requisition your ship— for reasons of the utmost urgency, hence the regrettable lack of formality. "'Are you from the government?' the captain snapped. Mr. Black looked surprised. "'The government? I am afraid not. Just between us there is little of the government left at the moment, and what there is is mostly hiding in its cellars. No, to be honest with you, the government has always found it convenient not to know much about us, 
and I would advise you to do the same. Oh, really? I was not born yesterday, you know. No, indeed, Captain. You were born forty-five years ago, the second son of Mr. and Mrs. Bertie Samson, and christened Lionel after your grandfather, said Mr. Black, calmly lowering his package to the deck. The captain hesitated again. That had sounded like the start of a threat. The fact that no actual threat followed made it, for some reason, quite discomforting. Anyway, who do you work for? he managed. I like to know who I'm sailing with. Mr. Black straightened up. As you wish. We are known as the Gentlemen of Last Resort. We serve the Crown. Does that help you? But I thought the King was— The captain stopped, not wanting to say the dreadful word. He is dead, Captain Sampson, but the Crown itself is not. Let us say that we serve a higher purpose, and to that purpose, Captain, I will tell you that your men will get four times their usual pay for this trip, plus ten guineas a day for every day under the record for the run to Port Mercia, plus a further one hundred guineas on their return. The promotion prospects for every man and officer on board will be much improved. You, Captain, will of course receive enhanced payments as befits your rank. And, since we understand your plan is to retire shortly, the Crown will certainly wish to show its gratitude in the traditional way. Behind him, Sir Geoffrey spoke and coughed at the same time. <coughs> Knighthood! <coughs> I'm sure Mrs. Sampson would like that, said Mr. Black. It was like torture. Captain Sampson had a mental picture of what would happen if Mrs. Sampson ever found out that he had turned down the chance of her becoming Lady Sampson. It didn't bear thinking about. He stared at the man who called himself Mr. Black and said quietly, Is something going to happen? Are you trying to prevent something? Yes, Captain. War. The heir to the throne must set foot on English soil within nine months of the monarch's death. It's in the Magna Carta down in the small print, or, rather, the tiny writing. The barons didn't want another Richard the Lionheart, you see. And regrettably, since an infected waiter served the soup at the king's birthday party, the next two living heirs to the throne are both somewhere in the great southern pelagic ocean. I believe you know it well, Captain. Ah, I understand now. That's what's in those boxes, said the captain, pointing. It's a load of English soil. We find him, he sets foot on it, and we all shout hurrah. Mr. Black smiled. Well done, Captain, I am impressed. But, alas, that has already been thought of. There is a sub-clause, too. It stipulates that the English soil must be firmly attached to England. We may declare the succession overseas, even crown the man, if necessary, but his presence will be required on English soil within the time period for full ratification. You know, Mr. Black, I thought I knew all of the Magna Carta, but I've never heard of these clauses, said Sir Geoffrey. No, sir, said the gentleman of last resort, patiently. That is because they are in the ratified version. You don't think barons who could hardly write their names could come up with a complete set of sensible rules for the proper running of a large country for the rest of history, do you? Their clerks put together the full working Magna Carta a month later. It's seventy times bigger, but it is foolproof. Unfortunately, the French have a copy. Why? asked the captain. Yet another coach had pulled up on the dockside. It looked expensive, and had a crest painted on the door. Because 
If you don't succeed in this enterprise, Captain, it will then be quite likely that a Frenchman will become King of England, said Mr. Black. What? shouted the Captain, forgetting all about the new coach. No one would stand for that? Wonderful people, the French, wonderful people, said Sir Geoffrey hurriedly, waving his hands. Our allies in the recent unpleasantness in the Crimea and all that, but— "'No, oh, we are the best of chums with the French government on this one, sir,' said Mr. Black. "'The last thing they want to see is a Frenchman on any throne anywhere. "'It wouldn't do for our Gallic brethren. "'There are those in France who do, though, "'and we think it would be a good thing for all concerned "'if our new monarch could be brought here with a minimum of fuss and a maximum of speed.' "'They killed the last king they had,' said Captain Sampson, who wasn't going to waste a good rage. "'My father fought against them at Trafalgar. Can't have that, sir, not at any price. I can speak for the men on that, sir. We'll break the record again, sir, coming and going.' He looked around for Sir Geoffrey, but the chairman had hurried down the gangplank and was fussing around two veiled figures who had gotten out of the coach. "'Are they women?' asked the captain, as they swept up onto the Cutty Wren's deck and went past him as if he were of no importance whatsoever. Mr. Black shook some snow off his own veil. The smaller one is a maid, and I take it on trust that she is a woman. The tall one, whom your chairman is so eager to please, is a major stockholder in your shipping line, and, more importantly, is also the mother of the heir. She is a lady indeed, although my limited experience of her suggests that she's also a mixture of the warrior Queen Baudicea without the chariot, Catherine de Medici without the poisoned rings, and Attila the Hun without his wonderful sense of fun. Do not play cards with her, because she cheats like a Mississippi bust-out dealer. Keep Sherry away from her, do everything she says, and we might all live. Sharp tongue, eh? Razor-blade, Captain. On a lighter note, it is possible that, en route, we might catch up with the heir's daughter, who thankfully was already well on the way to join her father before the plague struck. She is due to leave Cape Town today on the schooner Sweet Judy, bound for Port Mercia via Port Advent. The captain is Nathan Roberts, I believe you know him. What, old hallelujah, Roberts? Is he still afloat? Good man, mark you, one of the best. And the Sweet Judy is a very trim vessel. "'The girl is in safe hands, depend upon it,' the captain smiled. "'I hope she likes hymns, though. "'I wonder if he still makes the crew do all their swearing "'into a barrel of water in the hold.' "'Keenly religious, is he?' asked Mr. Black, "'as they headed toward the warmth of the main cabin. "'Just a tad, sir, just a tad. "'In the case of Roberts, Captain, how big is a tad?' "'Captain Sampson grinned. "'Oh, something about the size of Jerusalem?' At the other end of the world the sea burned, the wind howled, and roaring night covered the face of the deep. It takes an unusual man to make up a hymn in a hurry, but such a man was Captain Roberts. He knew every hymn in the antique and contemporary hymn-book, and sang his way through them loudly and joyously when he was on watch, which had been one of the reasons for the mutiny. And now, with the end of the world at hand, and the skies darkening at dawn, and the fires of revelation raining down and setting the rigging ablaze, Captain Roberts tied himself to the ship's wheel as the sea rose below him, and felt the sweet Judy lifted into the sky as if by some almighty hand. There was thunder and lightning up there, 
Hale rattled off his hat. St. Elmo's fire glowed on the tip of every mast and then crackled on the captain's beard as he began to sing in a rich, dark baritone. Every sailor knew the song. Eternal Father, strong to save, whose arm hath bound the restless wave, he bellowed into the storm, as the Judy balanced on the restless wave like a ballerina. Who bids the mighty ocean deep its own appointed limits keep? How fast were they moving, he wondered, as sails ripped and flapped away. The wave was as high as a church, but surely it was running faster than the wind. He could see small islands below, disappearing as the wave roared over them. This was no time to stop praising the Lord. O oh, hear us when we cry to thee, for those in peril on the sea, he finished, and stopped and stared ahead. There was something big and dark out there, coming closer very quickly. It would be impossible to steer around it. It was too big, and in any case the helm didn't answer. He was holding it as an act of faith to show God that he would not desert him and hoped that in return God would not desert Captain Roberts. He swung the wheel as he began the next verse, and lightning illuminated a path across the restless wave, and there, in the light of the burning sky, was a gap, a valley or cleft in the wall of rock, like the miracle of the Red Sea, thought Captain Roberts, only, of course, the other way round. The next flash of lightning showed that the gap was full of forest, but the wave would hit it at treetop height. It had slowed down. They might just be saved even now in the very jaws of hell. And here they came. And so it was that the schooner Sweet Judy sailed through a rainforest, with Captain Roberts inspired to instant creativity, making up a new verse explicably missing from the original hymn. O thou who buildst the mountains high to be the pillars of the sky. He wasn't totally certain about bilst, but bidst was apparently acceptable. Who gave the mighty forests birth. Branches cracked like gunshots under the keel, thick vines snatched at what remained of the masts, and made a garden of the earth. Fruit and leaves rained down on the deck, but a shudder meant that a broken tree had ripped away part of the hull, spilling the ballast. We pray to thee to stretch thy hand. Captain Roberts gripped the useless wheel tighter and laughed at the roaring dark. To those in peril on the land. And three great fig trees, whose buttressed roots had withstood centuries of cyclones, raced out of the future and came as a big surprise. His last thought was perhaps who raised the mountains high would have been a better line in the circumstance. Captain Roberts went to heaven, which wasn't everything that he'd expected and as the receding water gently marooned the wreck of the sweet Judy on the forest floor, only one soul was left alive. Or possibly two, if you like parrots. On the day the world ended, Mao was on his way home. It was a journey of more than twenty miles, but he knew the way, oh yes. If you didn't know the way, you weren't a man. And he was a man, well, nearly. 
He'd lived for a month on the island of the boys, hadn't he? Just surviving on that place was enough to make you a man. Well, surviving and then getting back. No one ever told you about the boys' island, not properly. You picked up stuff as you grew, but there was one thing you learned very soon. The point about the boys' island was that you got away from the boys' island. You left your boy soul there and were given a man's soul when you got back to the nation. You had to get back, otherwise something terrible happened. If you didn't get back in thirty days, they came and fetched you, and you'd never be a man, not really. The boys said it would be better to drown than be fetched. Everyone would know you'd failed, and you'd probably never get a wife, and if you did get a wife, she'd be a woman none of the real men wanted with bad teeth and smelly breath. Mao had lain awake for weeks worrying about this. You were allowed to take only your knife to the island, and he had nightmares about building a canoe in thirty days with just a knife. It couldn't be done. But all the men in the nation had done it, so there had to be a way, didn't there? On his second day on the boys' island, he'd found it. There was a god anchor in the middle of the island, a brown stone cube half buried in sand and soil. Heavy vines grew over it and wrapped around a huge Tobago tree. Carved deeply into the tree's dry bark, in the language for children, were the signs, Men Help Other Men. Next to it, wedged into the wood, was an alaki, a carved black stone on a long handle. Hold it one way, it was an axe. Hold it the other, it was an adze, good for hollowing out a log. He pulled out the axe and learned the lesson. So had many other boys. Mao climbed the tree one evening and found the hundreds of marks all the way up the trunk, where generations of grateful boys had left the axe, or one like it, for those who came after. Some of them would be grandfathers now, up in the cave on the mountain, back home. They would be watching, with eyes that could see for miles, and perhaps they watched him when he discovered the log, well-seasoned, and not too well hidden among the pandanooses at the back of the little island. When he got home, he'd say he found it, and everyone would say that that was lucky, and perhaps the gods had put it there. Now that he came to think about it, his father and a couple of his uncles had gone off fishing near the island early one morning, without inviting him to come with them. It had been a good time. He knew how to make fire, and he'd found the little fresh water spring. He'd made a spear good enough to get fish from the lagoon and he'd made a good canoe, firm and light, with an outrigger. All you had to build was something that would get you home, but he'd worked on this canoe with knife and skate-skin so that it whispered over the water. He hadn't rushed his last day as a boy. His father had told him not to. Clean up the camp, he'd said. Soon you'll belong to a wife and children. That will be fine. But sometimes you will look back fondly on your last day as a boy, make it a warm memory, and be back in time for the feast. The camp was so clean that you wouldn't know he'd been there. Now he stood in front of the ancient Tobago tree for the last time, the axe in his hand, and he was sure, the grandfather's looking over his shoulder. It was going to be perfect, he knew. Last night the stars of air, fire and water had been in the sky together. It was a good time for new beginnings. He found a clear place in the soft bark and raised the axe. For a moment his eye caught the little blue bead tied to his wrist. It would keep him safe on the journey home. 
His father had told him how proud he'd be on his way back, but he would need to be careful and not draw the attention of any gods or spirits to himself. It was not good to be between souls. He'd be like Mihai Gawi, the little blue hermit crab, scuttling from his shell to a new one once a year, easy prey for any passing squid. It was not a nice thought, but he had a good canoe and a calm sea, and he would scuttle fast, oh yes. He swung the axe as hard as he could, thinking, Ha! The next boy to pull this out will deserve to be called a man. Men help other men, he shouted as the stone hit the bark. He'd meant it to have an effect. It did, far more than he expected. From every corner of the little island, birds exploded into the air like a cloud of bees. Finches and waders and ducks rose out of the bushes and filled the air with panic and feathers. Some of the larger ones headed out to sea, but most of them just circled, as though terrified to stay but with nowhere else to go. Mao walked through them as he went down to the beach. Bright wings zipped past his face like hail, and it would have been wondrously pretty if it weren't for the fact that every single bird was taking this opportunity to have a really good crap. If you're in a hurry, there is no point in carrying unnecessary weight. Something was wrong. He could feel it in the air, in the sudden calm, in the way the world felt suddenly as though something heavy was pressing down on it. And now it hit Mao, knocking him flat on the sand. His head was trying to explode. It was worse even than that time when he'd played the stone game and had hung on too long. Something was weighing down on the world like a big grey rock. Then the pain went as fast as it had come, with a zip, leaving him gasping and dazed. And still the birds swarmed overhead. As Mao staggered to his feet, all he knew was that here was not a good place to be any more. And if it was the only thing he knew, then at least he knew it with every nail and hair of his body. Thunder rolled in the clear sky, one great hard jolt of it that rattled off the horizon. Mao staggered down to the tiny lagoon while the noise went on, and there was the canoe waiting for him in the white sand of the water's edge. But the usually calm water was dancing, dancing like water danced under heavy rain, although no rain was falling. He had to get away. The canoe sloped easily into the water, and he paddled frantically for the gap in the reef that led to the open sea. Beneath him and around him, fish were doing the same thing. The sound went on like something solid, smashing into the air and breaking it. It filled the whole of the sky. For Mao it was like a giant slap on the ears. He tried to paddle faster, and then the thought rose in his mind. Animals flee. His father had told him so. Boys flee. A man does not flee. He turns to look at his enemy, to watch what he does, and find his weakness. Mao let the canoe slide out of the lagoon and easily rode the surf into the ocean, and then he looked around like a man. The horizon was one great cloud, boiling and climbing, full of fire and lightning and growling like a nightmare. A wave crashed in the coral, and that was wrong too. Mao knew the sea, and there was also something wrong with that. The boy's island was falling way behind him, because a terrible current was dragging him toward the great bag of storms. It was as if the horizon was drinking the sea. Men looked at their enemy, yes, but sometimes they turned around and paddled like mad. It made no difference. The sea was sliding, and then suddenly was dancing again, like the water in the lagoon. Mao, trying to think straight, 
fought to get the canoe under control. He'd get back. Of course he would. He could see the picture in his head, small and clear. He turned it around, savouring the taste of it. Everyone would be there. Everyone. There could be no exceptions. Old, sick men would prefer to die on mats at the water's edge rather than not be there. Women would give birth there if they had to, while watching for the homecoming canoe. It was unthinkable to miss the arrival of a new man. That would bring down terrible bad luck on the whole nation. His father would be watching for him at the edge of the reef, and they'd bring the canoe up the beach, and his uncles would come running, and the new young men would rush to congratulate him, and the boys he'd left behind would be envious. And his mother and the other women would start on the feast, and there would be the thing with the sharp knife where you didn't scream, and then there would be everything. And if he could just hold it in his mind, then it would be so. There was a shining silver thread connecting him to that future. It would work like a god-anchor, which stopped the gods from wandering away. Gods! That was it! This was coming from the gods' island. It was over the horizon, and you couldn't see it, even from here. But the old men said it had roared back in the long ago, and there had been rough water and a lot of smoke and thunder because the fire god was angry. Maybe he'd gotten angry again. The cloud was reaching up to the top of the sky, but there was something new down at sea level. It was a dark grey line getting bigger. A wave? Well, he knew about waves. You attacked them before they attacked you. He'd learned how to play with them. Don't let them tumble you. Use them. Waves were easy. But this one was not acting like the normal waves at the mouth of the reef. It seemed as though it was standing still. He stared at it and realised what he was seeing. It looked as if it was standing still, because it was a big wave a long way off, and it was moving very fast, dragging black night behind it. Very fast, and not so far away now. Not a wave, either. It was too big. It was a mountain of water, with lightning dancing along the top, and it was rushing, and it was roaring, and it scooped up the canoe like a fly. Soaring up into the towering, foaming curve of the wave, Mao thrust the paddle under the vines that held the outrigger and grabbed on as... It rained. It was a heavy, muddy rain full of ash and sadness. Mao awoke from dreams of roast pork and cheering men and opened his eyes under a grey sky. Then he was sick. The canoe rocked gently in the swell while he added, in a small way, to what was already floating there. Bits of wood, leaves, fish, cooked fish. Mao paddled over to a large hee-hee fish, which he managed to drag aboard. It had been boiled, right enough, and it was a feast. He needed a feast. He ached everywhere. One side of his head was sticky with, as it turned out, blood. At some point he must have hit it on the side of the canoe, which wasn't surprising. The ride through the wave was an ear-banging, chest-burning memory, the kind of dream you are happy to wake up from. All he'd been able to do was hold on. There had been a tunnel in the water, like a moving cave of air in the roll of the giant wave, and then there had been a storm of surf as the canoe came out of the water like a dolphin. He would swear it had leapt in the air. And there had been singing. He'd heard it for just a few seconds while the canoe raced down the back of the wave. It must have been a god or maybe a demon. Or maybe it was just what you hear in your head as you half fly and half drown 
in a world where water and air are changing places every second. But it was over now, and the sea that had tried to kill him was about to give him dinner. The fish was good. He could feel the warmth entering his bones. There were plenty more bobbing with all the other stuff. There were a few young coconuts, and he drank the milk gratefully and began to cheer up. This would be a story to tell, and a wave that big must have washed up at home so they'd know he wasn't lying. And home was... where? He couldn't see the boy's island, he couldn't see the sky. There were no islands. But one horizon was lighter than the other. The sun was setting over there somewhere. Last night he'd watched the sun set over the nation. That had to be the way. He set out steadily, watching that pale horizon. There were birds everywhere, perching on anything that floated. Mostly they were little finches, chattering madly as the canoe went past. Some of them even fluttered over and perched on the canoe itself, huddling together and staring at him with a sort of desperate, terrified optimism. One even perched on his head. While he was trying to untangle it from his hair, there was a thump as something much heavier landed on the stern of the canoe, causing the finches to scatter and then flutter back because they were too tired to make it to anywhere else. But they kept as far away as possible from the new passenger, because it wasn't particular about who it ate. It was a big bird, with shiny blue-black feathers and a white chest, and little white feathers covering its legs. Its huge beak, though, was brilliant red and yellow. It was a grandfather bird, and good luck, to people at least, even if it did slow Mao down and eat one of his fish. Grandfather birds had learned not to be frightened of people. It was bad luck even to shush one away. He could feel its beady eyes on the back of his neck as he paddled onward. He hoped it might be lucky. If he had some luck, he could be home long before midnight. There was an irk as the grandfather bird took off again with another of Mao's boiled fish in its beak, making the canoe wallow for a moment. Well, at least I'm a bit lighter, Mao thought. It's not as though I need the fish in any case. I'll be filling up with pork tonight. The bird landed heavily on a log a little way ahead, quite a large log, in fact. As he drew nearer, Mao saw that it was a whole tree, even with its roots, although a lot of its branches had been torn off. He saw the axe, tangled, rising out of the water, but part of him already knew he was going to see it. The sight of it raced toward his eyes and became, just for a moment, the centre of the turning world. The grandfather bird, having juggled the fish so that it could swallow it whole, took off in its gloomy, is-this-really-worth-it way, and flapped with its big slow wings, nearly touching the scummy water. With its weight gone, the tree started to roll back. But Mao was already in the water, and caught the axe handle as it was pulled under. Holding his breath, he braced his legs against the tree's trunk and tugged. Oh, he'd been clever, hadn't he, that moment a hundred years ago now, slamming the axe hard into the tree to show the next boy what a big man he was. It should have worked. With his last mighty heave, the axe should have come free. That's how it should have been, in a perfect world. But the swollen wood had gripped it firmly. Mao dived again three more times, and came up every time coughing and spitting seawater. He had a deep, angry feeling that this wasn't right. The gods had sent the axe to him, he was sure of that. They had sent it to him because he was going to need it, he was certain of it, and he had failed. In the end, he swam back to the canoe and grabbed the paddle before the grandfather bird was out of sight. They always flew back to land at night, and he was pretty certain that there couldn't be much of the boy's island to go back to. The Tobago tree was hundreds of years old, and it had roots thicker than Mao's waist. It looked as though they had practically held the island together, and there had been a god-anchor among them, 
No wave should have been able to shift a god anchor. It would be like moving the world. The grandfather bird flapped onward. Ahead of it, the thin line of the horizon grew redder, redder than any Mao had ever seen before. He paddled on as fast as he could, trying not to think about what he was going to find ahead of him. And because he was trying not to think them, the thoughts ran around his head like excited dogs. He tried to calm them down. Look, the boy's island was hardly anything more than a lump of rock surrounded by sandbanks, was it? he thought. It wasn't good for being anything but a fishing camp, or a place for boys to try to be men. The nation had mountains, well, one good one, had a river, there were caves, there were whole forests, there were men who'd know what to do. Wouldn't they? And what could they do? But the little picture of his man-soul feast flickered in his head. It wouldn't stay still, and he couldn't find the silver thread that dragged him toward it. Something dark drifted in front of the sunset, and he almost burst into tears. It was a perfect sunset wave, rolling across the red disk that was just sinking below the horizon. Every man in the islands of the sun had that image as his manhood tattoo, and in a few hours he knew it, so would he. And then, where the wave had been, there was the nation. He could recognise its outline anywhere. It was five miles away, maybe. Well, he could do another five miles, and soon he'd see the light of the fires. Paddling faster, eyes straining to see the darker shape in the strange twilight, he made out the whiteness of the surf over the reef, and soon, please, soon he would see the light of the fires. Now he could smell them, all the smells of the land except the one he wanted, which was the smell of smoke. And then there it was, a sharp little tone in the sense of sea and forest. There was a fire somewhere. He couldn't see it, but where there was smoke there were people. Of course, if the wave had come this way, there wouldn't be much dry wood. The wave wouldn't be bad here, not here. He'd seen big waves before, and they would make a mess and splinter a canoe or two. All right, this one had looked really big, but waves did when they went over the top of you. People had gone up the mountain and brought down dry wood. Yes, that's what had happened. That was certainly what had happened. He'd worried about nothing. They would be back soon. That was it. That was how it would be. But there was no silver thread. He could make the happy pictures in his mind, but they were out there in the dark, and there was no path to them. It was almost fully dark when he entered the lagoon. He could make out leaves and branches, and he hit a big lump of coral that must have been broken off the reef by the wave. But that was what the reef was for. It took the pounding of the storms. Behind the reef, around the lagoon, they were safe. With a little kiss of crushed sand, the canoe touched the beach. Mao jumped out, and remembered just in time about the sacrifice. It should be a red fish for a successful journey, and this journey had to be called a success, even if it was a very strange one. He hadn't got a red fish, but, well, he was still a boy, and the gods excused boys many things. At least he'd thought about it. That must count. There were no other canoes. There should have been many. Even in this gloom things looked wrong. There was nobody here. Nobody knew he was standing on the shore. He tried anyway. Hello? It's me, Mao. I'm back. He started to cry, and that was worse. He'd cried in the canoe, but that was just water escaping from his face. But now the tears came in big sobs, dribbling from his eyes and nose and mouth unstoppably. He cried for his parents because he was afraid because he was cold and very tired, and because he was fearful and couldn't pretend. But most of all, he cried because only he knew. 
In the forest something heard, and in the hidden firelight sharp metal gleamed. Light died in the west. Night and tears took the nation. A star of water drifted among the clouds like a murderer softly leaving the scene of the crime. Chapter 2 The New World The morning was a lighter shade of night. Mao felt as if he hadn't slept at all, hunched up among the broad, fallen leaves of a coconut tree. But there must have been times when his body and mind just shut down, and a little rehearsal of death. He awoke, or maybe came alive again with the dead grey light, stiff and cold. Waves barely moved on the shore, the sea was almost the same colour as the sky, and still it rained tears. The little river that came from the mountain was choked with sand and mud and bits of trees, and when he dug down with his hands it didn't flow. It just oozed. In the end Mao had to suck at the rain as it trickled off leaves, and it tasted of ashes. The lagoon was a mess of broken coral, and the wave had ripped a big hole in the reef. The tide had changed, and water was pouring in. Little Nation, which was barely more than a sandbank on the rim of the lagoon, had been stripped of all its trees but one, which was a ragged stem with, against all hope, a few leaves still on it. Find food, find water, find shelter. These were the things you had to do in a strange place, and this was a strange place, and he'd been born here. He could see that the village had gone. The wave had sliced it off the island. A few stumps marked the place where the long house had stood, since forever. The wave had torn up the reef. A wave like that would not have even noticed the village. He'd learned to look at coasts when he'd been voyaging with his father and his uncles, and now, looking up, he could see the story of the wave written in tumbled rocks and broken trees. The village faced south. It had to. The other three sides were protected by sheer crumbling cliffs in which sea caves boomed and foamed. The wave had come from the south of east. Broken trees pointed the trail. Everyone would have been on the shore, around the big fire. Would they have heard the roar of the wave above the crackle of the flames? Would they have known what it meant? If they had been quick, they would have headed up Big Pig Valley, to the higher ground beyond the fields. But some of the wave would already have been roaring up the eastern slope, all grassy there, nothing much to slow it down, and they would have met it pouring back on them. And then the rolling cauldron of rocks and sand and water and people would have broken through the west of the reef and into the deep water current where the people would have become dolphins. But not everyone. The wave had left behind fish and mud and crabs, to the delight of the leg of pork birds and the grey ravens, and of course the grandfather birds. The island was full of birds this morning. Birds Mao had never seen before were squabbling with the familiar everyday ones. And there were people, tangled in broken branches, half buried in mud and leaves, just another part of the ruined world. It took him a few long seconds to realise what he was looking at, to see that what he had thought was a broken branch was an arm. He looked around slowly, and realised why there were so many birds, and why they were fighting. He ran. His legs took him and he ran, screaming out names, up the long slope, past the lower fields, which were covered with debris, past the higher plantations, too high even for the wave, and almost to the edges of the forest. And there he heard his own voice, echoing back from the cliffs. No one. But there must be someone. But they had all been waiting, for someone who was no longer a boy, but had yet to become a man. 
he walked up to the women's place, totally forbidden for any man, of course, and risked a quick peek through the big hedge that surrounded the gardens, untouched up here by the water. But he saw nothing moving, and no voice called out in answer to his cry. They had been waiting on the beach. He could see them all so clearly in his mind, talking and laughing and dancing in circles around the fire, but there was no silver line, nothing to pull them back. They had been waiting for the new man. The wave must have hit them like a hammer. As he went back down to the fields, he grabbed a broken branch and flailed ineffectively at the birds. There were bodies everywhere in the area just above the scoured place where the village had been. At first they were hard to see, tangled as they were with debris and as grey as the ashen mud. He'd have to touch them. They had to be moved. The pigs would come down soon. The thought of pigs eating... No. There was some brightness behind the clouds in the east. How could that be? Another night had passed? Had he slept? Where had he been? But tiredness certainly had him now. He dragged some leafy branches up against a big rock for shelter, crawled inside, and felt the grey of the mud and the rain and the bruised-looking sky sneak in silently and fill him up and close over him. And Mao dreamed. It had to be a dream. He felt himself become two people. One of them, a grey body made of mud, began to look for the bodies that the wave hadn't taken. It did this carefully and as gently as it could, while the other Mao stayed deep inside, curled in a ball doing the dreaming. And who am I doing this? thought the grey Mao. Who am I now? I am become like Lokaha, measuring the contours of death. Better be him than be Mao on this day, because here is a body, and Mao will not see it, lift it, or look into its eyes, because he will go mad. So I will do it for him, and this one has a face Mao has seen every day of his life, but I will not let him see it now. And so he worked, as the sky brightened, and the sun came up behind the plume of steam in the east, and the forest burst into song, despite the drizzle. He combed the lower slopes until he found a body, dragged it or carried it, some were small enough to carry, down to the beach, and out to the point where you could see the current. There were usually turtles there, but not today. He, the grey shadow, would find rocks and big coral lumps, and there were plenty of those, and tie them to the body with paper vine. And now I must take my knife and cut the spirit hole, thought the grey mow, so that the spirit will leave quickly, and pull the body out into the waves where the current sinks, and let it go. The dreaming Mao let his body do the thinking. You lift like this, you pull like this, you cut the paper vine like that, and you don't scream, because you are a hand and a body and a knife, and they don't even shed a tear. You are inside a thick grey skin that can feel nothing, and nothing can get through, nothing at all, and you send the body sinking slowly into the dark current, away from birds and pigs and flies, and it will grow a new skin and become a dolphin. There were two dogs, too, and that almost broke him. The people, well, the horror was so great that his mind went blank, but the twisted bodies of the dogs twisted his soul. They had been with the people, excited but not knowing why. He wrapped them in paper vine and weighed them down and sent them into the current anyway. Dogs would want to stay with the people, because they were people, too, in their way. He didn't know what to do with the piglet, though. It was all by itself. 
Maybe the sow had legged it for the high forest, as they did when they sensed the water coming. This one hadn't kept up. His stomach said it was food, but he said no, not this one, not this sad little betrayed thing. He sent it into the current. The gods would have to sort it out. He was too tired. It was near sunset when he dragged the last body to the beach, and was about to wade out to the current when his body told him, No, not this one. This is you, and you are very tired, but you are not dead. You need to eat and drink and sleep, and most of all, you must try not to dream. He stood for a while until the words sank in, and then trudged back up the beach, found his makeshift shelter, and fell into it. Sleep came, but brought no good thing. Over and over again he found the bodies and carried them to shore because they were so light. They tried to talk to him, but he could not hear them because the words could not get through his grey skin. There was a strange one, too, a ghost girl, totally white. She tried to talk to him several times, but faded back into the dream like the others. The sun and moon whirled across the sky, and he walked on in a grey world, the only moving thing in veils of silence forever. And then he was spoken to, out of the greyness. What are you doing, Mao? He looked around. The land looked odd, without colour. The sun was shining, but it was black. When the voices spoke again, they seemed to come from everywhere at once, on the wind. There is no time for sleeping. There is so much that must be done. Who are you? We are the grandfathers. Mao trembled, and trembling was all he could manage. His legs would not move. The wave came, he said. Everyone is dead. I sent some into the dark water. You must sing the dark water chant. I didn't know how. You must restore the god anchors. How do I do that? You must sing the morning song and the evening song. I don't know the words. I'm not a man, said Mao desperately. You must defend the nation. You must do the things that have always been done. But there's just me. Everyone is dead. Everything the nation was, you are. While you are, the nation is. While you remember, the nation lives. There was a change in the pressure of air, and the grandfathers went. Mao blinked and woke up. The sun was yellow and halfway down the sky, and beside him was a flat, round metal thing, on top of which was a coconut with the top sliced off and a mango. He stared at them. He was alone. No one else could be here, not now, not to leave him food and creep away. He looked down at the sand. There were footprints there, not large but they had no toes. He stood up very carefully and looked around. The creature with no toes was watching him, he was sure. Perhaps, perhaps the grandfathers had sent it. Thank you, he said to the empty air. The grandfathers had spoken to him. He thought about this as he gnawed the mango off its huge stone. He'd never heard them before, but the things they wanted, how could a boy do them? Boys couldn't even go near their cave. It was a strict rule. But boys did, though. Mao had been eight when he'd tagged along after some of the older boys. They hadn't seen him as he'd shadowed them all the way up through the high forests to the meadows where you could see to the edge of the world. The grandfather birds nested up there, which was why they were called grandfather birds. The older boys had told him that the birds were spies for the grandfathers and would swoop on you and peck your eyes out if you came too close, which he knew wasn't true 
because he'd watched them, and he knew that, unless there was beer around, they wouldn't attack anything bigger than a mouse if they thought it might fight back. But some people would tell you anything if they thought you'd be scared. At the end of the meadows was the cave of the grandfathers, high up in the wind and the sunlight, watching over the whole world. They lived behind a round stone door that took ten men to shift, and you might live for a hundred years and see it moved only a few times, because only the best men, the greatest hunters and warriors, became grandfathers when they died. On the day he had followed the boys, Mao had sat and watched from the thick foliage of a grass tree as they dared one another to go near the stone, to touch it, to give it a little push. And then someone had shouted that he'd heard something, and within seconds they'd vanished into the trees, running for home. Mao had waited a little while, and when nothing happened, he had climbed down and gone and listened at the stone. He had heard a faint crackling right on the edge of hearing, but then a grandfather bird on the cliff above was throwing up. The ugly-looking things didn't just eat everything, they ate all of everything, and carefully threw up anything that didn't fit, taste right, or had woken up and started to protest. There was nothing very scary at all. No one had ever heard of the grandfather's coming out. The stone was there for a reason. It was heavy for a reason. He forgot about the sound. It had probably been insects in the grass. That night, back in the boys' hut, the older boys boasted to the younger boys about how they had rolled away the big stone, and how the grandfathers had turned their ancient dry old faces to look at them, and tried to stand up on their crumbling legs, and how the boys had very bravely rolled the big stone back again just in time. And Mao had lain in his corner and wondered how many times this story had been told over the last hundreds of years to make big boys feel brave and little boys have nightmares and wet themselves. Now, five years later, he sat and turned over in his hands the grey round thing that had acted as a holder for the mango. It looked like metal, but who had so much metal that they could waste it on something to hold food? There were marks on it. They spelled out Sweet Judy in faded white paint, but they spelled out Sweet Judy in vain. Mao was good at reading important things. He could read the sea, the weather, the tracks of animals, tattoos, and the night sky. There was nothing for him to read in lines of cracked paint. Anyone could read wet sand, though. A toeless creature had come out of the low forest and had gone back the same way. At some time in the past, something had split the rock of the island, leaving a long low valley on the east side that was not very far above sea level and had hardly any soil. Things had soon taken root even so, because something will always grow somewhere. The low forest was always hot, damp and salty, with the sticky, itchy, steamy atmosphere of a place that never sees much new air. Mao had forced his way in a few times, but there wasn't much of interest, at least not at ground level. Everything happened high above, up in the canopy. There were wild figs up there. Only the birds could get at them, and they fought over the little morsels, which meant that there was a steady rain of bird poo and half-eaten figs onto the forest floor, which in turn was a permanent feast for the little red crabs that scuttled around and cleared up anything that dropped in. Sometimes pigs came down to feed on the crabs, so the low forest was worth an occasional look. You had to be careful, though, because you often got a tree-climbing octopus or two in there, after baby birds and anything else they could find, and they were hard to pull off if they landed on your head. Mao knew that you must never let them think you were a coconut. You learned that fast because they had sharp beaks. 
The tree-climbing octopus, Octopus arbori, is found on the island where the sun is born, in the mothering Sunday islands. They are extremely intelligent and cunning thieves. Now he came around the huge broken rocks that stood at the entrance to the valley and stopped. Something much bigger than a bird plop or a pig had hit the forest. It couldn't have been just the wave. Some enormous thing had charged through, leaving a line of smashed trees into the distance. And not just trees. It had left treasure behind. Rocks. Grey round ones, brown ones, black ones. Good hard rocks had a lot of uses here, where the mountain rock was too crumbly to make decent weapons. But Mao resisted the temptation to collect them now, because rocks don't go anywhere, and besides, there was the dead man. He lay by the track as if the creature had tossed him aside, and he was covered in little red crabs whose big day had come. Mao had never seen a man like this before, but he'd heard of them, of the pale people in the north who wrapped their legs in cloth so they looked like a grandfather bird. They were called the Trouser Men, and were as pale as ghosts. This one didn't worry him, not after the memory of yesterday, which screamed all the time behind a door in his head. This was just a dead man. He didn't know him. People died. Mao didn't know what to do with him either, especially since the crabs did. Under his breath he said, "'Grandfathers, what shall I do with the trouser man?' There was a sound like the forest drawing its breath, and the grandfathers said, "'He is not important. Only the nation is important.' This was not a lot of help, so Mao dragged the man off the broken track and into a deeper part of the forest, with an army of little crabs following in a very determined way. They'd had years of fig seeds and bird plop. They'd put up with this like good little crabs, they seemed to say, but now it was time for their perfect world. There was another trouser man farther along the trail, also dropped by the creature. Mao didn't think about it at all this time, but just dragged him into the tangle of undergrowth too. It was the best he could do. He had walked too much in the footsteps of Lokaha lately. Perhaps the crabs would take the soul of the man back to the trouser man world, but here and now Mao had other things to think about. Something had come out of the sea on the wave, he thought, something big, bigger than a sailfin crocodile. The sailfin crocodile, Crocodilus porosus maritimus, is still found in all parts of the pelagic. It travels immense distances on the surface by means of a large skin and cartilage sail, which it can, to some extent, steer. Bigger than a war canoe, bigger even than a whale. Yes, that could be it, a big whale. Why not? The wave had hurled big rocks beyond the village, so a whale wouldn't stand a chance. Yes, a whale, that would be it, thrashing around in the forest with its big tail and slowly dying under its own weight. Or one of the really big sea squids or a very big shark. He had to be sure. He had to find out. He looked around and thought, yes, but not in the dark, not in the twilight. In the morning he'd come with weapons, and in the morning it might be dead. He selected a couple of useful-looking rocks from the monster's trail and ran for it. Night rolled over the jungle. The birds went to bed, the bats woke. A few stars appeared in the desolate sky and in the tangle of broken trees at the end of the trail something sobbed all night. Mao awoke early. There was no more fruit on the round metal thing, but a grandfather bird was watching him hopefully in case he was dead. When it saw him moving, it sighed and waddled off. Fire, thought Mao, I must make fire. 
and for that I need punk wood. His punk bag was a muddy mess because of the wave, but there was always punk in the high forest. He was hungry, but you had to have fire. Without fire and a spear you could never hope to be a man, wasn't that right? He spent some time hammering the metal thing between the two stones he'd taken from the monster's track, and ended up with a, a long sliver of metal that was pretty bendy but very sharp. That was a good start. Then he chipped one stone against the other until he had enough of a groove to allow him to bind the stone to a stick with paper vine. He wound paper vine around one end of the new metal knife to make a kind of handle. As the sun rose, so did Mao, and he raised his new club and his new knife. Yes, they might be sorry things that a man would have thrown away, but now he could kill things, and wasn't that part of being a man? The grandfather bird was still watching him from a safe distance, but when it saw his expression it shuffled off hurriedly and lumbered into the air. Mao headed up to the high forest while the sun grew hotter. He wondered when he'd last eaten. There had been the mango, but how long ago? It was hard to remember. The boy's island was far away in time and space. It had gone. Everything had gone. The nation had gone. The people, the huts, the canoes, all wiped away. They were just in his head now, like dreams, hidden behind a grey wall. He tried to stop the thought, but the grey wall crumbled, and all the horror, all the death, all the darkness poured in. It filled up his head and buzzed out into the air like a swarm of insects. All the sights he had hidden from himself, all the sounds, all the smells, crept and slithered out of his memory. And suddenly it all became clear. An island full of people could not die, but a boy could. Yes, that was it. It made sense. He was dead, and his spirit had come back home, but he couldn't see out of the spirit world. He was a ghost. His body was on the boy's island, yes, and the wave had not been real. It had been Lokaha coming for him. It all made sense. He'd died on land with no one to put him into the dark water, and he was a ghost, a wandering thing, and the people were all around him in the land of the living. It seemed to Mao that this was not too bad. The worst had already happened. He would not be able to see his family again, because everyone hung ghost bags around the huts, but he would know that they were alive. The world breathed in. Why have you not replaced the god-anchors? Why have you not sung the chants? Why have you not restored the nation? The little valley of the grandfather birds floated in front of Mao's eyes. Well, at least they would believe him this time. I'm dead, grandfathers. Dead? Nonsense! You are not good enough to be dead. Hot pain struck Mao's left foot. He rolled and yelped, and a grandfather bird, that had also decided he was dead and had pecked his foot to make sure, hopped away hurriedly. It didn't go far away, though, in case he died after all. In the grandfather bird's experience, everything died if you watched it for long enough. All right, not dead, Mao thought, pushing himself upright, but dead tired. A sleep full of dark dreams was no sleep at all. It was like a meal of ashes. He needed fire and real food. Everyone knew that bad dreams came when you were hungry. He didn't want those dreams again. They were about dark waters and something chasing him. Mud and sand covered the fields, but worse than that, the wave had broken down the thorn fences, and the pigs had clearly been rooting all over the fields in the night when Mao had been in the prison of his dreams. There would probably be something left in the muck if he grubbed about long enough, but a man didn't eat where a pig had eaten. 
There was plenty of wild food to eat on the island. Upside-down fruit, bad-luck root, mala stems, red star tree, paper vine nuts. You'd stay alive, but a lot of it you had to chew for a long time, and even then it tasted as though someone had eaten it before you. Men ate fish or pork, but the lagoon was still cloudy, and he hadn't seen a pig since he'd been back. They were wily, too. A man by himself might get a lucky shot if a pig came down in the low forest at night to eat crabs. But once they were in the high forest, you needed many men to catch one pig. He found tracks as soon as he entered the forest. Pigs were always making tracks. These were fresh, though, so he poked around a bit to see what they'd been after, and found some madroot tubers, big and white and juicy. The pigs had probably been so stuffed with the food from the field that they were grubbing around out of pure habit and didn't have room for one more tuber. Madroot tubers had to be roasted before they could be eaten, though, or else you went mad. Pigs ate them raw, but pigs probably didn't notice if they were mad or not. There was no dry punkwood. There were rotten branches all over the place, but they were sodden to the core. Besides, he thought, as he threaded the tubers on a length of paper vine, he hadn't found any firestones yet, or decent dry wood for fire sticks. Grandad Nawi, who did not go raiding because of his twisted leg, sometimes took the boys tracking and hunting, and he used to talk about the paper vine bush. It grew everywhere, its long leaves as tough as anything, even when they were crackling dry. Take one strip of the vine lengthwise, and yes, it needs the strength of two men to pull it apart, but weave five strands of it into a rope, and a hundred men can't break it. The more they pull, the more it binds together, and the stronger it becomes. That is the nation. They used to laugh at him behind his back because of his wobbling walk, and didn't pay much attention to him, because what could a man with a twisted leg know about anything important? But they made sure that when they laughed, they were well behind his back, because Nawi always had a faint little smile, and an expression that said he already knew far more about you than you could possibly guess. Mao tried not to laugh too much, because he had liked Nawi. The old man watched how birds flew, and always knew the best places to fish. He knew the magic word that would keep sharks away. But he hadn't been carefully dried out in the hot sand and taken to the cave of the grandfathers when he died, because he'd been born with a leg that didn't work properly, and that meant he'd been cursed by the gods. He could look at a finch and tell you which island it had been born on. He used to watch spiders make webs and saw things other people didn't notice. Thinking about it, Mao had wondered why any god would curse someone like that. He'd been born with that leg. What had the baby done to make the gods angry? One day he'd plucked up the courage to ask him. Nawi was sitting out in the rocks, occasionally staring out to sea in between carving something, but he'd given Mao a look that indicated company would not be objected to. The old man had laughed at the question. It was a gift, boy, not a curse, he said. When much is taken, something is returned. Since I had a useless leg, I had to make myself a clever brain. I cannot chase, so I learn to watch and wait. I tell you boys these secrets and you laugh. When I hunt, I never come back empty-handed, do I? I think the gods looked at me and said to themselves, Well, this one's a sharp one, eh? Let's give him a gimpy leg so he can't be a warrior, and we'll have to stay at home among the women. A fate which has something to recommend it, my boy, believe me, and I thank them. Mao had been shocked at this. Every boy wanted to be a warrior, didn't he? You didn't want to be a warrior? Never. It takes a woman nine months to make a new human. Why waste her effort? But then, when you died, you could be taken up to the cave and watch over us forever. <laughs> I think I've seen enough of you already. 
I like the fresh air, boy. I'll become a dolphin like everyone else. I'll watch the sky turn, and I will chase sharks. And since all the great warriors will be shut up in their cave, it occurs to me that there will be rather more female dolphins than male ones, which is a pleasing thought. He leaned forward and stared into Mao's eyes. Mao, he said. Yes, I remember you. Always at the back. I could see you thinking. Not many people think. Not really think. They just think they do. And when they laughed at old Nawi, you didn't want to. But you laughed anyway to be like them. I'm right, yes. How had he spotted that? But you couldn't deny it. Not now. Not with those pale eyes looking through you. Yes, I'm sorry. Good. And now that I've answered your questions, I think you owe me a favour. Do you want me to run an errand? Or, or I could... I want you to remember something for me. Have you heard that I know a word that drives away sharks? People say so, but they laugh. Oh, yes. But it works. I've tried it three times. The first was when I discovered it, which was when I was about to have my good leg bitten off, and then I tried it out from a raft, just to see if I'd been lucky the first time. And then I swam off the reef one day and frightened away a hammerhead. You mean you went looking for a shark? said Mao. Yes, quite a big one, as I recall. But you might have been eaten. Oh, I'm not bad with a spear, and I had to find out, said Nawi, grinning. Someone had to eat the first oyster, you know. Someone looked at half a shell full of snot and was brave. Why doesn't everybody know? Nawi's permanent smile turned down a little. I'm a bit strange, yes, and the priests don't like me much. If I told everyone, and someone died, I think things would be very tricky for me. But someone should know, and you are a boy who asks questions. Don't use it until I'm dead, all right, or until you're about to be eaten by a shark, of course. And there, on the rocks, as the sunset made a path of red across the sea, Mao learned the shark word. It's a trick, he said, without thinking. Not so loud snapped Nawi, glancing back at the shore. Of course it's a trick. Building a canoe is a trick. Throwing a spear is a trick. Life is a trick. And you get one chance to learn it. And now you know another one. If it saves your life one day, catch a big fish and throw it to the first dolphin you see. With luck, it'll be me. And now the old man and his leg were only a memory, along with everyone Mao had ever known. Mao wanted to scream with the weight of it. The world had emptied 